Good morning. Good morning. morning. Open your uh, Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. I bet you thought we'd never get here. Revelation chapter 20. We have one of the shorter chapters to go through this morning, but we have a lot of ground to cover, a lot of doctrines in this chapter. I've had a number of questions about some of the doctrines that come up in this chapter over the last couple of weeks, and so I'm going to take time to uh, address those. But just to uh, bring us up to date, um, in a word or two, we're now at the point in Revelation where the world as we know it today is, well, gone. Not the planet itself, that comes later, the beginning of chapter 21. Not surprisingly, God is going to destroy this heaven and earth because it's been tainted by sin. Doesn't that make sense? He can do it, and he's going to do that. But uh, before that, of course, comes the millennial reign, which we'll look at this morning. But when I say the world, I mean the world system, and we talked about that. The world system, uh, backed by Satan, helped along by man, but the world system, as we know it right now, which we're living in as we speak, Surrounded by six billion people, most of whom are hurrying along with their lives with no thought of God. And we need to remind ourselves that is an abnormal situation. <laughs> the very God who created everyone, who moment by moment gives them and us life and breath, as it says in the book of Acts, is ignored. In fact, people want nothing to do with him, and that is totally abnormal. And God is going to set that situation right very soon, I believe. We've been looking at the birth pangs of the Great Tribulation the last many months uh, in preparation for that time when the Lord Jesus Christ will visibly return to earth. He will come again. He promised it. The scripture is full of it from Genesis through Revelation. Probably one of the best supported doctrines in the Bible that Jesus Christ is going to come again. And when he does, he will rule. And so, we saw the preparation for that moment. Finally, the great battle of Armageddon. We saw it last time. And uh, then to set the stage for the millennial reign. It's called millennial because the prefix meal means a thousand. And the word a thousand is literally here. We'll talk about that. So, something has to happen first. And that's in verse 1. We'll read this a section at a time. And then we'll comment on it as we go. Chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel... Coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand, he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while." Okay, several things to notice here. Um, First of all, during the time that Christ will reign physically on this physical earth for a literal thousand years, the devil will be out of action. He's going to be put out of commission, which will help the uh, idyllic situation that will be here when Jesus reigns. There will be no devil. He will not be able to act. Um... Now, it's interesting the number of words that God uses to show that Satan's uh, going to be immobile here. Uh, notice all the uh, pictures here of the fact that he is going to be put aside. First of all, the bottomless pit is where he's going to go. It says that this angel came with a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon. And it says he bound him. Then he cast him in the bottomless pit. And then shut him up. And then set a seal on that. Okay? God is letting us know there is no way he is going to get out. Okay? Isn't that great? Now, you're sitting there and saying, oh, wait a minute, you know, Satan's a spirit being, and how can he be? You bind him with a chain and so on. Well, remember, uh, God is giving a vision here to the Apostle John. And so he uses this picture of a chain. I don't know what the chain looks like. I can promise you, though, that God is uh, demonstrating to John and to us that he, Satan, will be incapacitated. Beyond that, I don't know the details. 
Um, there is a bottomless pit. In fact, in fact, you remember we saw it back in chapter 9. You remember that? When the locust came out? Yes? Uh-huh. A few, few nodding heads anyway. My, how quickly you forget. Another thing to notice here is uh, the key word used to describe the devil of all the... You know, there are, it's very interesting. There are key words associated with the devil in the Bible. For example, uh, the sins that he majors on. The first number one sin that's always seems to be associated with the devil is what? Right, pride. But then there are others that, that just seem to tie in with him. One is deception and lying, right? Uh, a murderer. You know, he's called a murderer from the beginning. And here the word, of all the words I could have used, throughout this chapter, we're going to see this one word over and over again. It's deception. And it's interesting if you think about it. You know, the devil uh, doesn't derive his power and his influence over people because of his great strength. Although he is a great being, there's no doubt about it. He was probably the greatest created being of God. Okay, and he's not some guy with horns and a red union suit and a pointed tail and a pitchfork. He's a spirit being and he is incredibly powerful. But it's not because of his strength that he exerts his power. It's because of this, his ability to deceive. He is incredibly smart. He knows the ways of, you talk about the master psychologist. I'll tell you, he knows how we tick. And he knows uh, what can get to us. And so throughout this chapter, you're going to see this word. It's over and over again. The deceiver. He, he was no longer able to deceive. Remember, uh, in Armageddon, of all things, he went out and, and deceived the leaders of the world and the armies of the world to come together to resist Christ when he returns. That's a pretty good job to make people think that they can actually stop that. Huh? This guy is uh, pretty persuasive. And uh, he's going to prove his ability for one last time after the uh, millennium, which we'll see later when he comes out and deceives the nations once again. And, and uh, with this persuasiveness of his convinces them that they can resist God. But he's out of the picture here now for a thousand years. Okay, we commented on the, the millennium, this thousand years here. First of all, let me say, yes, it's a literal thousand years. There's no reason not to take it literally. The phrase thousand years occurs no less than six times here in this short section of the scripture. Now, as you know, there are, there are many who uh, allegorize or uh, spiritualize away the thousand years and say it's not a literal thousand years. These are all millennialists. They say that uh, the tribulation is already over, that we are living in the millennium right now. Which, of course, uh, you run into all kinds of difficulties by holding that kind of a position. Uh, first of all, Satan, therefore, should be bound at this moment. If Satan is bound now, I hate to think what it's going to be like when he's unbound. Also, uh, we're going to look at some passages here in the, in the uh, Scripture. If we're in the millennium, then I'll tell you, the verses in the Old Testament that describe the millennium are pretty watered down. Uh, it's, it should be a time of incredible prosperity, peace on earth, the lion laying down with the lamb. You know, I don't see any lions laying down with lambs unless it's to eat them right now. Uh, it's... A, it's basically paradise on earth with the Lord Jesus Christ reigning physically in Jerusalem. Well, they say, well, he's reigning in our hearts. You know. Um, so, it's, it's totally laughable and there's no reason why we should not take the thousand years literally here, just like everything else we have in uh, Revelation, whenever possible. Remember, unless we uh, see the word as or like, right? But it doesn't say he's going to reign like a thousand years. He'll reign eight, in fact, it says the thousand years a couple of times here. Another verse that uh, all millennials will use, of course, is in Second Peter, where talking about the long, long suffering of the Lord, it says that with the Lord, uh, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. And 
they, they take that and say, well, there's the equation right there. That's the magic equation to unlock the periods of time in Scripture. It says one day equals 1,000 years, and 1,000 years equals one day. So that this 1,000 years isn't literal, it means whatever you want it to mean, some uh, unspecified period of time. And of course, they're missing the whole point of what that verse is teaching. I've illustrated this before from the pulpit, and I'll illustrate it again. It's trying to communicate to us the idea that God is outside of time. Do you understand? We are bound by time. And I can illustrate that by saying uh, there is a moment coming, let's say, Mark, right now, ten seconds from now, and I'm not there yet, and you're not there yet. You have to wait for it to come. All right, there it is. Now, you, at the moment when I said that, you were experiencing that moment of time, weren't you? Are you experiencing it now? No, you've moved on. <laughs> Can you go back? Uh-uh. <laughs> now, maybe you have something exciting to do today and you can't wait. And you say, I'd like to transport myself forward three hours, you know, and start doing it. You can't. You see, we are finite beings. We are finite creatures. God made us that way. And so here I am standing here right now. I wasn't standing here an hour ago. I was someplace else. And an hour from now, I probably won't be standing here anymore. I'm in one place at one time. You see, we are very, very puny, finite little beings. God is not like that. First of all, he is everywhere at once. Omnipresent is the word. Do you understand? People get this picture that God created the universe and then somehow went off to some other place. I don't know where it would be, some back room and instituted these laws, and the universe just carries on. No! It says, by him all things consist. That is literally hold together. Talking about Jesus Christ. Hebrews uh, chapter 1 says, and upholding all things by the word of his power. Literally maintaining everything in creation. So every electron, every atom, every molecule, every person, every star... Right now, ongoing, moment by moment, he is sustaining and maintaining everything. And including in Acts, as we quoted earlier, he gives to all life and breath. Right now, as you derive your life, it is coming from God. You are not a self-existent being. He is sustaining you and keeping you alive, moment by moment. Every heartbeat, every breath. Everywhere he's doing this. Isn't he a great God? And so, he is, that's the physical part, he's everywhere at once. But he's also outside of time. And that's what the verse was really saying in 2 Peter. I've quoted John 8 many times on this. You know, that's what Jesus meant when he said, before Abraham was, that was a time, wasn't it? Before Abraham, way back, okay? Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Okay? Back at that time, he is right now. Jesus Christ, when he spoke those words, existed before Abraham at that moment. And after Abraham and during Abraham. Do you understand? God doesn't have to wait for that moment to get here. Wouldn't he somehow be a, a smaller God if he had to be like us and wait for tomorrow to come to experience it? Huh? He doesn't. He is then. He is now. I love the phrase in Isaiah. God, describing himself, says, I am the high and lofty one who inhabits present tense eternity. You got that? Present tense, he inhabits eternity. He is everywhere and, and all times now. Okay? And that's what that verse is saying, you see. If he is at all times and everywhere at once, then to him a day is a thousand years. There is no different. You see, he doesn't have to wait a day or a thousand years or any time to experience time. Okay? These are constrictions that he created for us to exist in. I'm glad he did it that way too. Isn't it neat to have something to look forward to? <laughs> Otherwise it'll all be over. You know? And praise God if you know Jesus Christ. You've got an eternity of tomorrows with him to look forward to. Isn't that great? It'll never end. And, and let me promise you it'll get better every day. Okay, so, that's a little excursus, as Bill calls them in his uh, commentary. 
on the nature of God, and in particular this idea of the thousand years. It's a literal thousand years. Okay, uh, verse 4. John says, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him, and here it is again, a thousand years. Okay, um, now we're going to talk about some of those doctrines I said that come up in this chapter. Somebody's, several people have asked me already about one of these points, and that is about the resurrection, the first resurrection, and how many resurrections are there, and so on. So we're going to have a quick tutorial here now on the resurrections, okay? So pay attention, get your pen out if you want to take notes. We're going to look at them. Uh, first of all, there are at least two resurrections. We know that right here from what we just read, right? Because he talks about this first resurrection, and then he talks about these ones who are going to be raised later. In fact, it's right here in, in verse uh, 12 and 13. That's the resurrection that comes later. The de- uh, verse 12, I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were open, another book was open. Uh, verse 13, the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. We're going to talk about that when we get there. But this is a different resurrection, clearly, than the first resurrection. Okay? You with me? Yes? yes. Okay, thank you, John. Uh, okay, well, who is in the first resurrection? Well, uh, we saw in verse uh, 4, uh, those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. It says, and they lived, that's the, that's the phrase right there, that's talking about their resurrection. So they died. They, they were killed for their faith in Christ during the tribulation. Okay? And now they come back to life. God raised them from the dead. Now, when we say resurrection, uh, it doesn't mean they stopped existing when they died and they started re-existing. Okay? They're spirit beings created in the image of God. They existed during all that time. But they have received bodies. We can go on, on, on and on about this, but the bottom line is it seems from Scripture that we're, we're, we're more comfortable in bodies than we are outside of them. That's just the way God made us. Okay? It says that in 2 Corinthians 5 that we don't wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed. And the picture there is our spirit. We like living in bodies. The problem is this model, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's not made for eternity. <laughs> See the gray? See the glasses? Okay? And it's not God's fault. Okay? He did a pretty good job. You think about this thing moving along for 55 years. That's pretty good for what it had to do. You know? But uh, praise God, we're not going to have to go to heaven, brothers and sisters, in these bodies. Whew! Aren't you glad? You see, it's the same God that created this body. Look, he knows what he's doing. He has a new model. I don't know how else to put it. It's described in great detail, in a certain sense in great detail, in in 1 Corinthians 15. The point is, for believers, that body is fit for heaven. And it will never decay. Uh, We won't sin in that body. Okay? And it's made for heaven. It's made for the presence of God. Trust me, you'll be happy in that body. Okay? God made you. He made this body. He made that body. You can trust Him. All right? And so that's what we're talking about. We're talking about resurrection. It, it means, look, you and yourself, what makes you you is not that body. It's a shell. It's a container for you. What makes you you is your spirit. That's you. And you live forever because God made you that way in his image. And so death is simply the evacuation of this container. It's a good thing, too. It needs to be evacuated after a while. And resurrection is the reception of the new body. Now you say, how can you go on like this about these weird things? No, I wouldn't unless God told us so plainly in his word. Praise God he does. Isn't it nice to know what's coming down the road? You know? I begin to wonder if I didn't know about this. Okay, I see people die. 
I've been to funerals. I've seen dead bodies. You know, maybe you have, maybe you haven't. And what now? You know? Well, God tells us. When you see that dead body, they're not there anymore. Okay? So that's resurrection, and that's what's happened to these uh, great tribulation martyrs or believers. At that time, after the great tribulation ends, they're going to be raised from the dead. That is, they're going to receive their new bodies at that time. Well, we're st- what about everybody else? For example, the church. Us. What about Old Testament saints? What about them? Well, let's look back now at the First Thessalonians 4. Very familiar to many of you, but I know we've got some young believers here, so this is a good lesson for you. First Thessalonians 4. And this will cover the church. First Corinthians 4, verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. I'll wait for the paper to stop rustling here. First Thessalonians 4. Is that what I said? Okay. First Thessalonians 4. But I do not want you to be ignorant. This is verse 13, brethren. Concerning those who have fallen asleep. He's talking about Christians, believers in the church who have died. Okay? Lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, yes, he did, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, real authority here, okay? That we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. If we happen to be alive, and I strongly believe there are many, many people in this room who will be alive when Jesus Christ comes for his church, okay? Then we will be caught up and receive our new bodies at that moment. But during that moment, those who have died in Christ, because he has that phrase here in verse 16, let's read on. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. There's a key phrase in Christ that always means the church. Ephesians is full of that phrase, but many other epistles as well. And it's talking about a member of the church, the universal church. Anyone who knows Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Okay? Since, so that includes all of those who fit that category from the day of Pentecost, after the Lord's resurrection, until the rapture. Okay? Then, those who, who died that way, Christians, believers, will be raised at that time as well and receive their new bodies, along with any who happen to be living at that time. The whole point then, let's finish at verse 17, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. So in one great moment, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to remove from this scene all those who know him, and the church will be gone. When I say the church, I you what I mean those who really know Jesus Christ. Because we've said many times, there is going to continue a large population of people in, quote, churches with preachers and the whole bit. And the next Sunday, right after that, it's going to keep going on. You see, the Lord knows them who are His. And it's only those that He's going to take away. And so, we've already been, I'm not going to repeat all uh, what we've talked about before, but you remember we showed this, we believe, takes place right before the tribulation begins. And it really, as you stand back and see the economy of God and His dealings with people, it's a beautiful picture because God started with the nation of Israel as His people. And then in the book of Daniel, we saw that He told Daniel at that time that they had 70 weeks left in their history. Right? But He divided that into two sections. 69 weeks or sevens of years and one seven, one week of years, which is still left to take place. And that's the tribulation. Seven years. Okay? And what was a mystery, that word is used throughout the New Testament in talking about the church, a thing that was hidden was that we, the church, when I say we, I mean Jews and Gentiles alike who believe in Jesus Christ now, were hidden. It was not a known thing. It was a surprise. Okay? Nobody knew God was going to do that. It's a wonderful thing. It's gone on for 2,000 years practically now. And it's, it's, it's neat that 
at the very end, it's like he started out of the blue this thing called the church, and out of the blue, he's going to close it up by grabbing them all, giving them all the resurrection bodies, and they're done. It's like, okay, we're done with the church now as far as dealings you know, with their resurrection and, and their time on earth and, and so on. And then he returns to the nation of Israel as if that little intervening, that big intervening period had not taken place. And it's like, you know, pushing that 70th week onto the end of the 69th, and he'll pick up with Israel again. Do you follow that? Most of you did. I, we went over this when we first started this. So, we see another resurrection here, the rapture, which will take place before the tribulation, so that God will clean out the scene of believers, I don't know what else to put it, and make way for Israel now to return to the center of his dealings again. And he'll pick up and, uh, where he left off with them. Now the question is, the question remains, what about uh, the nation of Israel, all the saints from way back when? From, uh, you know, well, Abraham, uh, Abel, you know, the non-Israelite. Uh, all the Old Testament believers, all the way up before the church, when do they get resurrected? And I'll be quite honest, it's not quite clear. But there's one verse that seems to help. There are several verses in the Old Testament that do talk about, you know, uh, Old Testament saints being resurrected. It's an Old Testament doctrine as well as a new one. But as far as timing, probably the closest we can come is Daniel chapter 12. And let me say, there are some who believe uh, that the Old Testament saints will be resurrected just before the millennium. In other words, along with these martyred ones we saw here in Revelation 20. Okay? And that's what I believe. And that's what we're looking at this verse. If you don't, if you don't hold to that, some, some believe that uh, they will be raised with the church when we're caught up together. I don't personally hold to that. But, um, you know, it doesn't affect your salvation or anything. If you believe that, that's fine. But here's the verse in Daniel that seems to help a little bit. Uh, Daniel chapter 12. <clears throat> verse 1. At that time, he's talking about the end times. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. Do you know that Michael is a special angel just for the nation of Israel? He's a great being. And he, he has a, per, a particular assignment of being assigned to the nation of Israel. It's kind of neat. They have their own great angel. Uh, over your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. Well, there's a key. Jesus uses those same words in talking about what? Yeah, the great tribulation. That's right, in the, in the Gospels. So he's talking about the tribulation here. And at that time... Your people shall be delivered. We saw that back in chapter 12, remember? She will fly into the wilderness where God has prepared a place for her. Okay? Everyone who is found written in the book, talking about believers now, listen, because the unbelievers don't have to flee, they're going to worship the Antichrist. It's going to be those who know Jesus Christ. They're going to have to be flee and be taken care of. But listen now. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. There's the resurrection. Some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Okay, there it is. Don't, that's it. That's all we got to go on. Now, there are a few interesting things about this verse. One of them is, notice it says uh, in verse 2, as you pick up on this, it says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall, shall awake. It didn't say all, but we know eventually all people are going to be raised from the dead. You, you see that? It really says many. And so it seems to be talking about these ones he just described here. Everyone who was found written in the book. Those are the ones. And in fact, I can talk to Noah about this later. But uh, in verse 2, where it says, I think in most translations it says, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Do you have the word some there? It appears that in the Hebrew it could also, also mean these to everlasting life and those to shame and everlasting contempt. In which case, it would really be clear that... He's stressing the first ones to be raised are these ones who are written in the book. They are literally raised out of the dead. They are the many who are raised. But all will be eventually raised, and it's the ones who will be raised later that are the ones that are raised to shame and everlasting contempt. Are you with me on that? And so if that's the case, it certainly appears in the context 
that their resurrection does take place after the tribulation. Now, just as an added thing, if you understand the economy of God, that would make sense. You have the period of the church, and when he's done with the church, and when they're the last person the church has added, that's when they are resurrected. Well, he's not done with the nation of Israel until after the tribulation is over. Okay? And so it would make sense, although that's not necessarily an argument. We have to be careful about human reasoning, but it does fit the picture of the church that after the history of Israel is over, that is, the tribulation ends, then all they are all raised at that time. So that not just the martyrs that came out of the tribulation are raised, but all the Old Testament saints with them as well. Okay? So, uh, there's the possibility then of two resurrections to life, the church at the rapture and the Old Testament saints in the nation of Israel at the end of the tribulation. Ready, be, they will then be ready with their new bodies to enter into, you see, the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus. Perfect timing. Okay. Uh, and let me just stress now. Um, you say, uh, somebody asked me this. Well, what about uh, the person that, that uh, like the Old Testament saints right now that are waiting for their new bodies, you know, or even believers right now? What about them? Where are they? What's it like? See these for yourself. You might want to write them down. Scripture is abundantly clear that when a believer dies, he or she is with the Lord. Okay? But obviously, without their body, they left that behind. That got put in the ground. Philippians 2. Uh, pardon me. Let's look at uh, chapter 1. This is the section where Paul is in prison and he may well be executed. He doesn't know. And as he contemplates that possibility, you know, I may die, he says, look, don't weep for me if I do. That's a better thing because I'll be with the Lord. And that's what we want to see, you see. He says, um, verse 21, chapter 1, for to, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. We've quoted that many times. To live is Christ. In other words, if he lives... Well, he's living for the Lord Jesus Christ. We should be too. We should be able to say that for me to live is Christ. Okay? But then he says, to die is gain. He's saying, that's better. <laughs> I, get, I, it's, I gain. That, that's a positive. Okay? But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor. Yet what I, sh what I shall choose, I cannot tell. He says, I have the choice on one hand of staying here in the flesh, in the body, and helping you. Or of dying, i.e. living this body, leaving this body, and going to be with the Lord. Uh, verse 23, For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Amen. That's, that's better, he said. I'd much rather do that. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. Okay? That's pretty clear, isn't it? He says very plainly, to die would be to be with Christ right now. Okay, but he'll have to wait for his body when God gives the new body to all the church of which Paul is a member at the rapture. Are you with me? I see enough nodding heads to continue here. I'll just mention, look at 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 8 and read that section. It's very clear again. It says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And in fact, no, you, know, you, can, go, well, you can look there. I hear flipping pages. You can if you want, but we're going to really look at Luke 23. But in that section, that's where uh, some Christians come away with the doctrine of an intermediate body. You may laugh, but we, we don't know. Some believe that there is like an intermediate body to fill in, you know, until we get the final version. I don't know that. But there is a phrase in there where it says, uh, we, we desire not to be unclothed, in other words, without a body, but to be clothed with our heavenly tabernacle from above. Well, it sounds like there's something that we get right away as a provisional body. I don't know. God goes enough into it that we don't have to worry. He tells us more than enough, in fact, okay, to be quite content now. But the verse I want to look at uh, is one of my favorites. It's in Luke 23. <clears throat> the Lord Jesus says so much here to the thief on the cross in just a few words. In fact, verses 39 through 43 is so packed in my Bible, I have almost every word circled with a comment by it. This is a packed section of doctrines of things about Christ. 
But I just want to look at the words of the Lord Jesus here. This is the thief. He's dying. And he dies not long after this. Okay, this guy's going to be dead. I.e., he's going to leave his body. He's not going to stop existing, but he's going to stop using his body because it's going to cease functioning. <clears throat> and you remember, he turns in repentance to the Lord Jesus Christ and says with incredible faith, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He's looking at a guy who's being crucified. He knows Jesus is dying. He sees the blood coming from his wounds. And he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Is that faith or what? Man, that's great. And so Jesus honors that faith with a beautiful statement. He says, assuredly, first he says that. In your old King James it says, verily, verily. Right. In other words, he didn't have to say that. But he's saying, you can bake on this statement I am about to tell you. Assuredly. And then he says, I say to you. He doesn't have to say that. He knows, the thief knows who's talking. But Jesus says it. He says, I say to you. It's me speaking and you can trust me. That's why he says that. I say to you. Look at this. In King James it says, this day. In my version it says, today. <laughs> there it is. Today you will be with me. Isn't that great? You think that encouraged this guy? Wouldn't that be an encouragement? You're dying and you hear Jesus tell you today. Not a thousand years after you've been in a holding pattern, you know, or uh, we're going to give you a sedative and you're going to be unconscious for a thousand years, you know, or you're going to be roaming around looking for a body. No. Today, you, uh, certainty, will be, and this is great, with me. There's so many words here. That's so important. You will be with me. And then the word he uses is only found twice in the New Testament. He doesn't say heaven. We'd expect him to say that. He says in paradise. And that's such a strong word. It, it communicated to this man a place of incredible joy and peace and happiness. You see, it's a beautiful word. Paradiso. You will be with me today in paradise. I think the guy probably stopped hurting for a few minutes. You know, as he contemplated what the Lord told him here. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Isn't that great? Are you convinced? A believer, when he or she dies, are with the Lord right now in paradise. Happy as, as, as you can imagine. Happier than you can imagine. Dorothy, don't, dear Dorothy, has gone on ahead. I'll tell you, she would not trade places with anyone here. She is seeing the Lord face to face right now. Okay. So, uh, back to Revelation now. That was a quick excursus now on the doctrine of the resurrections. We're going to have another one now. Because there's another subject that comes up. Oh, by the way, what about the unsaved dead, you say? Well, that's where the two words in the Old Testament and the New come into play. Hades and hell is translated uh, in our English. Sheol is the word, uh, I believe, it's most commonly translated in the Hebrew. But there are two words. And just like uh, there is a state, so to speak, of the, of the saved, that is, we're with the Lord, but we don't have our final bodies yet, so it is with the unsaved. When they die, they go to a place of torment, but it's not the final place. That's in, in later in this chapter, when God judges them one by one and throws them in the lake of fire, or hell, the second death. Hades is like a, a temporary place, but it's a place of punishment. We know that from many scriptures. Certainly the rich man and Lazarus, huh? In the Gospel of Luke. The rich man says plainly, I am in torment in this flame. Okay? And that's Hades. So they are uh, in a place of torment as soon as they die. And in the final place of torment when God finally judges them one by one. But that's what I want to look at next because it's brought up here and that's the judgment. Judgments in the scripture. Verse 4, it said, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. They, plural. It's interesting. This is one of the few places in the Scripture where God doesn't give us an antecedent. You know what an antecedent is? It's when you see the word they or he or she, you can look back and see what they or he or she was. Well, you can't do that here. He starts the thought with the word they. And he really, he had not told us. There's no, go back and look. There's no they to connect it with. He just says, they. It's like, he says, I saw these guys, you know. 
I saw these people. And we're not going to harp on who they are. It's clear that some of them are the martyred dead out of the Great Tribulation because it says that in the ver- end of verse 6. They shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. And there you have the antecedent. It's given in verse 4 at the end. Okay? But whoever it is, and it, and it appears that it, it includes Old Testament saints and believers from the church. We're told that in 1 Corinthians 6, for example. Uh, in several of the Gospels, Jesus talks about the disciples sitting on thrones. Okay? The Lord Jesus knows, and he will delegate under him when he rules on the earth, uh, underlings, you know, people who will judge with him during the time of the millennium. And that's what this is talking about. But there are other judgments in, in the scripture. And just note these because it's running late here. Uh, when the history of planet Earth ends, the Lord Jesus Christ visibly returns, defeats his enemies at the Battle of Armageddon. Before he sets up his reign, there is still some sorting out to do on this planet. Because he is not going to permit any unbelievers to go into his millennial reign. Only those who know him will be allowed to go into the thousand years that he will reign here. And so there's some sorting out to do. And it's done in two phases. First, there's a, there's a sorting out, if you will, of, of the nation of Israel, specifically. That's found in Ezekiel 20, 33-38. He uses the phrase, them passing under the rod. Remember that phrase in the Old Testament? It's what the shepherds would do. Whenever they had to do anything individually with their flocks, they would have the rod and guaranteed that way as they went one by one under it, they could either count them or they could look at them and see how healthy they are or whatever, but they would hold the rod out. And, they, and as they went by one by one, they'd have a group over here and then they'd have a group over here. They would know that by the time they're all over here, they'd looked at each one of them one by one. Do you follow that? That's, how they used, that's what it meant going under the rod. And he uses that picture of the nation of Israel before the millennium. Separating the sheep from the goats is another phrase. Secondly, there will be a separation like that of the Gentiles. In other words, the Lord Jesus is going to say, believers, here are the believers, you, you can come to the millennium with me, and you, the unsaved, those who, do, who don't know me, who have rejected me, who have worshipped the Antichrist, go into everlasting perdition. And so he does that with the Gentiles, and a good scripture for that is Joel chapter 3, verses 1-10. through 10. You can also look at Matthew 25. There are a couple of parables there that, that illustrate that. So, those are two judgments. And it makes sense. The Lord Jesus is preparing his kingdom here on earth to be populated only by those who know him personally. Okay? But then, of course, uh, the final judgment is later in verses 11 through 15. And that is in regard to eternal destiny. And that will happen after the second resurrection. Okay, let's get back here now. Uh, Oh, there's one other uh, judgment. That's the judgment seat of Christ. We've talked about that before for believers, for uh, the church. All right, real uh, quickly now, we've talked about the thousand years where the Lord Jesus will reign on the earth. Let's just pause now and get just a quick glimpse of what that time is going to be like. There's probably... Uh, more scripture on that subject as far as future things than anything else describing what it will be like when the Lord Jesus Christ reigns on this earth and we're just going to look at one book and we're just going to look at highlights from it just about every prophet has something to say about the millennium and what it will be like we're going to look at Isaiah only in just a few passages just, just, just to get a flavor of what things are going to be like here on the earth and it's not going to be like now Let me tell you, it's going to be entirely different. Uh, Chapter 2, first of all. We're going to look at four sections here, real real quickly. Isaiah, chapter 2, verse 2. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. Jerusalem will be the center of the world during Christ's millennial reign. And the nations, no matter you know, who or where, they will all come there to worship the Lord. That's where he will reign from. Verse 3, Many people shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Won't that be great? Just think about that. 
I mean, it just hit me right now. It would be so wonderful right now to be able to do that. With the Lord right now in Jerusalem. Peace on the earth. Prosperity. The knowledge of the Lord covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. I can hardly wait. Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. Oh, it'll be so nice. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall rebuke many people. It doesn't mean that there's not going to be sin. There's going to be sin during that time, but it's not going to go very far. That's, that's the neat thing about it. People are going to be born during that time, and they're going to have to choose Christ just like we do today. And many of them won't. And so there will be sin. But not like as we experience it now, without the devil. And the Lord Jesus is going to put it down right now, as soon as it manifests itself. He will rule the nations with a rod of iron. Listen to this. They shall beat their swords into plowshares. Very famous verse. And their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. You like that? Isn't that beautiful? No more war. No more headlines, you know, of violence in the, in the Middle East or uprising in Afghanistan or Southeast Asia or South America. All gone. No more. Okay, chapter 4. Is that a little different from the world today? Chapter 4, verse 2. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and appealing for those of Israel who have escaped. And it shall come to pass that he who is left in Zion and he who remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. There's the sword after the sorting out. That's what that's talking about. He who remains after the sorting out of the unsaved among the nation of Israel, there will be those left. And that's the ones he's talking about here. Everyone who is recorded among the living in Jerusalem. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the blood of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning, talking about his cleansing of the nation of Israel, then the Lord will create above every dwelling place of Mount Zion and above her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night. Sounds like the time of Moses, doesn't it? Uh, For over all the glory there will be a covering, the glory of the Lord. We've heard about it, we'll see it. The glory of the Lord. And there will be a tabernacle for shade in the daytime from the heat, for a place of refuge and for a shelter from storm and rain. Chapter 10. Uh, Verse 20. And it shall come to pass on that day that the remnant of Israel and in such as have escaped of the house of Jacob will never again depend on him who defeated them, but will depend on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. It's not that way today, but it will be then. The remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people, O Israel, be as the sand of the sea, yet a remnant of them will return. The destruction decree shall overflow with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a determined end in the midst of of all the land. It goes on to t- tell them not to be afraid anymore. And then finally, chapter 65. And I'm skipping a lot here. Isaiah is loaded with pictures of the millennium. Now God blends, in this, in this prophecy here, He blends the eternal state because He begins talking about the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. But then he, as many times in prophecy, then jumps back to the tribulation. It's very clear because he talks about uh, sin existing at that time. Verse uh, 17, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. That will actually be after the millennium. And the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die 100 years old. Isn't that good? It's a thousand years, uh, the millennium, and it appears that uh, many who will be born at that time will live the whole time. Because at 100, they're going to be young. They're going to be children. Okay? Now, we will be there. 
brothers and sisters, those of you here right now who know Jesus Christ, we will be there with the Lord Jesus during this time. We're not going to die. We have our uh, heavenly bodies at that time. Okay? But those who are born at that time will have incredible longevity. Uh, but the sinner, being 100 years old, shall be accursed. See, there, there will be sinners. And what he's saying here is, what a miserable life this guy will live. You know, 100 years of misery. It says in the Old Testament, the way of the transgressor is hard. I know. Before I came to Jesus Christ, my life was miserable. Wasn't it, wasn't it yours? Can you imagine living 100 years of that without Jesus? Ah, that's what he's saying here. You know, it's bad enough going 50, 60, 70 years without him. Here, a hundred, and then he's still a child. Twenty-one, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. He's stressing the idea that nobody's going to come in and take them over. You know. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. Trees live a long time. Sequoia sempervirens live uh, 2,000 years. Uh... And my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble. For they shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord, and their offspring with them. It shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. You know, imagine praying and the Lord's in Jerusalem. <laughs> you know, and he knows before you speak what the request is, and he will answer it. Man, that's going to be great. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. And dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. I tell you, as I read that stuff, I can hardly wait. And it said, as we read last time in Romans, that the earth is groaning and longing. And we should be groaning within ourselves and uh, longing for that day. Well, I, I expected this would happen. I've got halfway through my notes. And so I'm not going to force myself to get finished with chapter 20. We'll just pick up next time, Lord willing. June, that's four months away. I'll tell you, we may not meet again. Here to go through His Word. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, how we thank You for Your Word and how precious these promises are to us. And as we read them, Lord, it's like a cleansing of our minds. It's like a refreshing to our souls as we see the way things ought to be. And we long for that day. But at the same time, Lord, we find ourselves here still waiting for you. And so, until you come, Lord, may we have eyes fixed on heaven and on you, uh, on the fact that you're right there with your hand on the door, ready to come. But we ask it in your precious name. Amen.